This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Welcome everybody to the Inspiration Project podcast. We're delighted today to have Jim Penman, who many of you um, will know him by his first name only. Uh, Jim has become a very successful franchise operator with the, what has become the, the megalithic enterprise that is Jim's whatever. Uh, started off as Jim's mowing and has branched into so many different different fields. Uh, we're absolutely delighted to get a chance to talk with Jim about some of the things that led him to commence his business and what he's learned in his business and how he's learned to live uh, a, a life that um, is true to his sense of, of values and character and the sorts of things that have gone into that. So Jim, welcome to our podcast today. We, uh, we look forward to the conversation that we have. Um, uh, one of the questions that is sort of st- first came to my mind when I understood we were going to have a chat with you today is uh, Jim's mowing, Jim's cleaning, Jim's whatever is characterized by that logo with, with a, a representation of a, of a fellow, a bloke. Yeah. Is yeah. that you, Jim? Is, are you the Jim that's on the side of all those trailers? And- I, I absolutely am. I, I used to have a beard and uh, I used to wear a hat when I was mowing lawns because it's, uh, I've got a fairly fair complexion that keeps the spot off my head. <laughs> actually me. In fact, if you look at um, Jim Penman images on Google, you can actually see a picture of me standing against the a trailer with the old version of the logo on it. It's actually taken from that picture. Really? You can see yourself. Yeah, it's just a graphic design. Well, in lots of ways, that's very reassuring to know that, that Jim is a real representation of a real person that, that in, yeah. started off on that sort of line. We'll, we'll um, be very that's interested to hear how you got into that line of work. Um, yes, that's but, right. I don't have a beard now. I can tell you, I don't look the same at all, which is probably not a bad thing. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was the, going grey, so I decided to take it off decades ago. I'm sure there's people who closer to you than we are that can pass comment as to whether that's an improvement or whether they, they think there's a sense of loss. <laughs> My kids didn't think so. They were horrified. They never, years later, they were still begging me to put it back. Yeah. Yeah, when it becomes characteristic, it can be a real shock to those around you. So you you, you walk out with a cleanly shaven face, and who is that man? <laughs> so, Jim, um, how did how did you end up fi- founding the the, uh, the huge success that that Jim's the, the, the business empire? Yeah, yeah, well, that's actually, right. Yeah. I, I'd love to say there was some long term plan, but what actually happened is I intended to, to be an academic. I spent uh, 11 years or so getting myself a PhD in history. And when, you, when you've got a PhD in history, what do you do when you mow rules for a living? Anybody knows that. So, um, um, they're, they're, not, I, I, they're not obvious connected, not obviously connected, mowing lawns and well, PhD because, in history. Because the, the academic field is very verified. One of my problems was that my ideas have become so wildly radical um, and unusual that there was no prospect of a job. And lawn mowing was, a, was my part-time student job. I just used to do it because I like being outside and I like, you know, grass and stuff. And I go out and mow lawns. It was pretty good money. So that was 
so I, I helped, helped to fund my my PhD. So it really started as a as a side business, just just something to get you through. Yeah. And and uh, wh- when did it or how did it become your main game? Well, basically, I I my my PhD had failed. I didn't even get it the first time, and I just had nothing to do. And I was deeply in debt at the time, um, my own stupidity in various ways. And I, I just had nothing to do. There's nothing I knew how to do to make a living out of. So I just got 24 bucks and did some um, leafleting around the uh, around the area, just walking around delivering leaflets and started mowing lawns and, and worked from there. That was back in 1982, just before Christmas. Wow. That, that's an amazing yeah. story. End of the academic year, not a lot of prospects, and so you turned your no hand. Pros- no prospects at all. There was mm. no possible way I was going to get a job. That was it. And we'd be interested to hear how that very um, humble beginnings turned into something which has become the biggest franchise operation, I think, uh, globally, at least one of the world most well-known. But can I, can I roll you back a little bit further? You, you're involved in a PhD in history, which yeah. clearly means you, you had some interest in learning and in school. Can you tell me about what your, your school experience was like, Jim? Uh, I, I was always interested from very young age in both history and biology, um, both two subjects, human evolution and so forth. So um, I, that was just a, that was just a fascination of mine, and I and I, and I was very interested in why civilizations collapsed. Mm. In school, I used to read tomes about Greek and Roman history and this kind of thing. I was fascinated by the decline of the Roman Empire. So when I went to university, my my fundamental aim was to try and figure out why this happened, why this civilization collapsed in the past and could the same thing be happening to us. That, that was the question that I went with. Was, was there something that sparked that initial fascination? Was there a, a class or a teacher or a book or something that... Sp- well, my, my father was very into history. When we were 10, when I was 10, we went to England for a year. We just toured around all around the England and, and looking at historical stuff. So dad was really into that kind of thing. So I guess it comes a bit from family. And I was a very nerdy sort of kid. I've always nose in a book. Hardly, hardly knew anybody. I was extremely introverted. And uh, that, that was just that was just the way I was. I was a nerdy kid reading an awful lot and, and just fascinated by this by this thing, this idea, mm. this question what causes the relationship to collapse. And and yeah. Basically family, I suppose. So the, some of those early experiences, was, was there uh, anybody in your young life that helped encourage that, that interest in academia or was that something that was just inherent and, and intrinsic in, in uh, the way you saw the world or the way you understood no, your, no, your, no, your gifts? My, no, it's not my family. My, my, as I said, my father was very much interested in that kind of stuff. He was a very you know, educated man. Um, mind you, he was pretty horrified. He was an engineer, so he wanted me to go and to do some sensible qualification like yeah, engineering or medicine or law or something of that nature. So when I actually went and, and did an art degree, he, he was not impressed at all. I mean, <laughs> you can blame him to a certain extent for sparking my interest in history, but uh, all of a sudden it wasn't, it wasn't what he had in mind for his oldest son, that's for sure. So it was, it was a part of look at it, it, keep things interest in history as a, as a general thing. Don't get too focused on that. It's not going to pay the bills. It's not going to put food on the table yeah. sort of approach. Yeah. Well, he's kind of a man who's interested in a lot of things. You know, talk about Carthaginians and all kinds of stuff, but, but, but not as a career. You're supposed to do something practical to make a living. 
And and you always had aspirations to head to university, Jim. That was that was where you thought yeah. life was taking. Well, you? I, as I said, it was really secondary to this question. I wanted to understand civilization, the rise and fall of civilization, and what and what course that happened. So the academic career was all part of that. So I just imagined myself doing a PhD. I, I thought, you know, I had some, well, I thought pretty good ideas and approach to these things, and I thought that might give me some. And credibility, and I could I could go to university, and I could research, and I could teach. Mm. That was kind of my aim. Mm. Well, you you don't just to make money or anything. Just just to, just to research and to teach and to learn. Yeah, I don't think anybody signs up for a PhD necessarily thinking it's going to be their ticket to to the easy life or or, or to high income. You you must no. have been reasonably good at learning to have made your way successfully through school, successfully through an undergraduate degree, and be eligible for a PhD program, is learning something that comes naturally to you? Well, of course. I mean, I'm just naturally curious. I, I, I love reading still. I read um, economists and new scientists, and I listen to a lot of talking books these days, all kinds of topics. So, yeah, I just love to learn. Life of the mind is a lot of fun. I've got a, my 10-year-old son has actually just got sparked with interest in science and stuff, and we talk all the time about that kind of thing. So mm. It's mm. wonderful. That, that's something that's really uh, interesting to hear that you've got that approach, which seems to be something that you take into all parts of life about a curiosity, how do things work. Did you find, yeah. even though you mentioned that you at one stage, the first go, you, you, your studies didn't bring the outcome that you would have been hoping, you, you've clearly gone back and, and um, completed those studies. Did you find any of the things that you were learning in that idea about how culture, how relationships, how community works together that you've been able to use in the, the process of your business development? No, it's got absolutely no relevance to business whatsoever. Um, what, it, what it did give me, what it came out with is the idea that civilization has basically got to do with um, biology. And that I discovered what I thought was the reason that civilizations do collapse. But they also clearly implication was that you could actually do something about that by changing human character. And that's actually what I did with my when I set out to to make a living, starting off with from my one man lawn mowing around, the whole notion behind that was that I would have enough money one day to actually fund the ongoing research. Mm. So I'm currently funding a, a major research project through um the Trobe University and elsewhere into into the um, you might say the biochemistry and epigenetics of human human character. Yeah, that that sounds I- incredibly interesting. Uh, I, I'm yes. a science teacher um, by training, so the, that that idea of how you could scientifically or, or uh, objectively measure some of the the input of biology into human character it would be a fascinating field. We, yes, well, we've got some very interesting results. We've done a lot of studies with rats. Actually, we're using pheromones to change behaviour in a way that has quite important implications for treatment of mental illness, amongst other things, too. So, some of the ideas from my research have actually worked out quite surprisingly well, you might say. Well, not surprising to me, but surprising to people who look at it. We've mm. published quite a few articles, too, in, in the academic literature. So, so, what I'm hearing is that some of your studies gave you some insight into the, the nature of human character, the nature of, of uh, how. What, what motivates and, and what uh, guides people's decision making. You, yeah. How much yeah. – you're, a, you're a, 
a, a person of faith, uh, Jim, a Christian. Can you tell me about the the way in which your faith framework was challenged or was enlightened by the studies that you're undertaking? Well, in, in a sense, more created by it. Um, just to put my history in perspective, I, I was, um, I'm, I've been an atheist. I was an atheist when I was about 14. Right. I completely turned my back on Christianity. I went to a reasonably conservative Christian school and I got into a lot of trouble there because I was entered. I used to object to chapel. When we had to watch football matches, I'd go around challenging kids where they believed in God and arguing with them. Went to a Billy Graham crusade and made fun of people going on the front. I was anti-Christian in those days. <laughs> and and wh- where did um, that come from, Jim? Was that was that uh, um... just just youthful. I was extremely unorthodox kid. I mm. just I just would would argue against anybody. Anybody had an idea, I was I could give the other other arguments against it. When even when I was ten, I remember arguing with their rector in, in England about the capital punishment mm. and all kinds of things. I just I just had that kind of contrary strain of mind, but I, but I think differently to everybody else. So. I went in the Christian environment and I rebelled against it. And mm. I didn't at that time see any any point to Christianity. I thought mm. Christian values were foolish, unnecessary, all these things about chastity, all this kind of stuff was, was garbage, it was old fashioned, you know, unscientific, it was it was rubbish. Um, the so, interesting thing is what what changed my mind about that was the studies that I did trying to understand human civilization and what lies behind it. And I realized that it was actually Christian values, including things like like um, chastity and fasting and Sabbath keeping and all those kind of principles that was the was the, the key the key driving force behind the rise of Western civilization that actually right. created the character that make our civilization possible. And that when we lose it, as we are losing it, it's actually part of what's making it decline. And so, Jill, I, I want to come back to that thought that you you were putting a little teaser out there about a, a comment on on uh, current culture, I suppose. But l- let me take you back. You're you're a 14 year old. You're in a in a Christian school. You're you're uh, rebelling against those belief system that belief system. Yeah. What changed for you? Basically, as I said, the research that I did. Even while you're at school, what, well, did you become a Christian at high school or at university? Oh, no, 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 no. That's just much later. I, um, I actually, you see, um, my, my research work was done at university. I became a Christian at the age of twenty-seven. Right. After many, many years at university, um, um, it, it was it was a long process of understanding civilization, understanding what lies behind what. To me, civilization is related to, to character. Everything relates to character. It's, it's individual character, individual personality that decides everything. It decides yeah. your form of government. It decides your wealth. It decides everything. And that character was created by, by basically by Christianity. Mm. So it was that. It was, a, it was a long-term understanding. Now that didn't itself, of course, make me believe in God. What what actually happened when I was, you know. Later on, is that I, I just got to know some of the Christians at, at Latrobe University, where I was. I got to like them, and mm. and I suppose my mind had been open. Mm. I could see the sense of Christian values at that stage, and um, so it wasn't much a, of a relief. And when I when I certainly had a sense that God was calling me, it was very easy to say yes. Because mm. because there's quite a difference, isn't there? I, I hear what you're describing about the 
the logical proposition of the cultural value of a belief system or even of a particular belief system that holds to values of integrity and honesty and hard work and compassion and all of those typical Christian values. But But the link between that and actually being a Christian and believing in God and one's fellow God is is, is obviously a major thing. But it was quite surprising, actually. I I, I was wandering through the um, the Tribe Union. It was an orientation week, and I just got chatting with some of these these kids and manning the Christian Union stand. That's really what happened. I got to know them, got to like them. They invited me on this retreat just this weekend away, and um, I was naked. Basically, so but I, but I liked them, so I just went along. And in the first morning of the retreat, there was a time like a quiet time where you sat and and, and just people prayed. Well, I I couldn't pray because I didn't believe in God, so I I um I just had a little book mm. and, a, and a red pen, and I started to write down the thoughts in my mind, and it just came out a very clear sense that God spoke to me. Mm. So I just went out and uh, and then then I started praying later, and I started joining in. Mm. <laughs> They were a bit startled because it was very sudden. It was very surprising to a lot of people. There was one particular guy there who'd known me, and somebody said, "You know, Jim Penman's become a Christian." And, he, and from what they described, he just he just sat there with his mouth agape, saying, "Jim Penman, a Christian." Jim Penman, couldn't, he couldn't comprehend it. It was such a, it was very much pull on the pull on the road to Damascus type of thing. Yeah. Did Did you have to go through your your own rationalising of that experience, or? Or was it something that was so organic that you you could just step across that threshold? It was it was just I don't know it was just it was just there. I mean, I obviously my mind was open. I liked these people. I liked the way they were. I I I I, I thought Christian, you know, Christian values were very good values from a very wide point of view, and. In, in a sense, you might say I wanted to find God, and, and at that stage, God found me. Yeah. That was how you describe it. Yeah. Very, yeah. very sudden, very dramatic, and I just changed sides. I sort of really went from, not exactly anti Christian, but certainly um, I just became very, very servant, which is the best land, I suppose. You know, I went on evangelistic coffee shops, and I did, you know, we did the thing at Belgrave Heights in the convention there, where we entertained the kids, and it was just absolutely wonderful it was, it was an amazing experience it was just I just thought it was like going from the desert to the promised land I always thought that way it was just yeah that's wonderful fantastic it was, it was just amazing joy and, and, and liberation and, and yeah that's a beautiful a story life. yes it's, it's great to hear you describe some of those very real experiences personal experiences that, that aren't I'm just, just so cognitive and theoretical yeah, because yeah. I was I was so long at university, and it was, I was only a Christian for about a year and a half until I got married. But at that time, it's just so full of incredibly vivid, great experiences, and and also to some rural and life girls were too, which wasn't, yeah. <laughs> which was an extra bonus. It was just oh, like in that in that period, it was just so wonderful. All these these amazing things. going on coffee shop was was fantastic. Um, we just had it was. You know, you, because it, you, people there are very, very excited and very enthusiastic. They're very musical too. Mm. So we'd be we'd be in the in the in the room. We'd be praying together, and then we start singing, and then it would go into dancing. Just that that joyful experience was just something beyond anything I'd ever known. Yeah, well, that, that's that's not very cognitive. It's not very um, 
theoretical, is it? It's a very experiential. Well, Christianity is very experiential to me. God is very experiential to me. It, it's a matter of the heart. It's mm. a matter of, of, of I find I find um, I find Christian Christianity a very joyful experience. To, to me, one of the greatest times of the whole week is is to be. Um, with my wife beside me in church on Sunday morning, mm. just singing, praising God. It's just a fantastic, liberating experience. I, I get very, very emotional. We go to a charismatic church, so people, you know, speaking in tongues and stuff like that. Mm. So it's a, it's a joyful experience. Mm. God is, is a very joyful experience. And the presence of God is very real for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, Jim, at what stage was this in the development of... Jim's mowing. Was it? Were you involved in studies at the start, or was this during the fledgling sides of your business? What? Well, I was I was out there mowing the lawns at weekends, basically, to, to help fund my my research. That was where it was at. I wasn't when I became a Christian. I was still intending to be an academic. I hadn't yeah. quite understood how completely hopeless that idea was. So, what in making a commitment to to have Christ in your life? What changes did that bring to the future that you saw? You, you. Uh... Well, in, in, in not in nothing in, in in academic terms at all. I still had the sense. The only thing is, I suppose when I became a Christian, instead of I felt that, that to continue my research was a was a uh, it, was, it was a task given by God, like the, you know the parable mm. of the talent, which mm. I absolutely love. You know, people have abilities, and God asks us to use those abilities. Mm. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful story, and I felt that that was the gift I've been given, and that God intended me to pursue it. Which, you know, when my whole academic career came potential came crashing down, it was it was it was hard to understand in a sense. Except that I felt God had given me the task to do and that somehow he would help me find a way to do it, even though at that time it seemed completely hopeless or mm. to anybody else. I mean, here am I, an impoverished, deeply indebted person with no useful skills, apart from doing my lawns quite well. Um, how, how can you fund a multi-million dollar research project? It, mm. it, it would seem insane to anybody else, but somehow I thought God would give me the, the mission and he'd, he'd work out some way that I could do it. Mm. So it, it, the... the obvious practical disappointment of the studies not progressing wasn't a challenge to your faith in any way? No, not at all. Absolutely not. It was, it was, it was definitely a very great security. I mean, I, I, I do some, I do believe that God is behind what I'm doing yeah. and, and that he will work out a way to make it possible. And, and you know, it, it, in, in a way it seems very unlikely that somebody would have achieved the could fund a research project doing right now. Yeah, so, but, you know, he found a way. And I think that when God wants us to do something, he will make it possible. So do you think you're... Even if the world says it, 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 it's not possible. Yeah. Sorry to speak, do you, do you think part of the success of your business enterprise ha- has flowed from your faith? Has that been a part of understanding how how to make people feel well, yeah. encouraged and empowered and, and welcomed? Look, there's, there's two things behind it. First of all, my, my faith, my sense of mission, my belief in what I was doing was the driving force. Always has been. I had to succeed. It's just not an option not to succeed. It's not an option to give up. Um, 
obviously my faith gives me a certain sense of, of I suppose, resilience, mm. a sense of, of, of comfort of knowing that God's behind it. But also, um, my faith has guided my business in certain very practical ways, even to the decisions that I make. Just as an example, when I just started off um, knowing the Lord, this is just before Christmas 82, I had some very, very bad old equipment just on this last leg. And I started this business with no capital, no money at all, mm. deeply in debt. And about two weeks later, my equipment completely gave up the ghost. This was just after Christmas, um, 1982. And so I went to, um, I, had to I had to get equipment, even though I really didn't have the money. I just had to get the equipment or I was dead right from the beginning. There's only one place open, which was a fair distance away. And I went in there and I bought the equipment, the mowing the brush company that I needed. And the guy added up the two and he gave me the amount and I paid him. And then I, I left the place. And as I got out, I realized that he'd actually, he'd added the, he'd added the amount something wrongly. Mm. He'd actually make the sum come out wrong. He'd undercharged it by a hundred dollars, which is quite a lot. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is, you know, this is, I really, really, really haven't got much money. I need this so badly. So I actually drove all the way to my first job and I got the mower out and I got it, put it on a nature strip to start mowing the lawns and I thought, God does not want me to do this. And even though I can't comprehend how it could happen, somehow he look after me. So I packed the mower up, I drove back to the shop, I walked in, I spoke to, saw the guy I spoke to and I said, you undercharged me by $100, here's the money. So I gave him the money that, which he was very appreciative of. He said, if you hadn't, I would have come out of his salary. But I thought, okay, but wow. how could, God wanted me to do this. Yeah. But how could he look after me? That very afternoon, I was actually doing a job for a person who sold um, copying machines. And I got into a conversation with him. And I, I am telling you, absolutely, I did not mention anything about my financial situation. I did not ask he, out of the blue, offered. He said, I will do some leaflets for you. He offered to do it. He not only told me that he was going to do some leaflets for me, some printing for me, but he also told me how many he would do for me. And you know what the value that it was? There was? It was $100. Amazing, Jim. It was just a few, I had never in my life before or since have anybody done that. The fact that it was the same day. Mm. And that told me so strongly, mm. God is looking after me. And if I do what he wants, mm. then somehow they come right. So in a sense, from a business point of view, it was not a very simple decision. Mm. But from the point of view of the Christian faith and walk, it was a very powerful decision. Mm. And there's a lot of things in my life that went the same way. Um, I'll give you another example. The... Um, I, I was I got in the business where I started off mowing lawns and I started building up and selling up lawn mowing houses. And I was very, very bad at selling. I'm a very extreme introvert and I was terrible at it. I really was. I was so bad at it that I would employ somebody, even a professional salesman, to sell lawn mowing grounds for me, even when I was in the same room. I was just incredibly incapable of doing this job and, and, and so knowing I was bad at it. I went to see a whole lot of people to ask advice about how I could sell. And they kept on saying, well, you've got to learn to sell yourself. And I said, I can't. I'm, a, I'm socially inept. I can't do it. 
And at that stage, I also went to see somebody in my church who was running an advertising agency, a very successful guy. And I wanted to ask his advice about advertising. And he called me, and I thought I might be an agency. And he went into his room, his office, and he, for half an hour, he told me about the advertising business, how to advertise, where to advertise, what principles, what sort of wording to use, what sort of media, a whole sort of stuff, everything he knew from his decades of experience. This highly stressful guy spent his time. At the end of it, he said to me, Jim, you don't really need an advertising agency at this stage. What you need to do is to go out and do what I suggested. And I remember walking back to my car, and I knew that if I ever needed an advertising agent, I would go straight back to that guy. Mm. I, um, I would have no hesitation. And, and the interesting thing is I was walking, I recognized that he had told me nothing about his business. Mm. I didn't know what he charged. I didn't know about his clients. But I knew, I actually knew I would use him. Mm. And I was wondering, why is it? Because I was interested in this process of selling, this, this selling thing. How do you sell? And mm. somehow this guy completely sold me on his business without saying not anything about his mm. business. But what I realized was that the only thing that he had been concerned with in that whole walk back was my interest mm. and the interest of my business. And mm. by doing that, he sold me on his business. I remember reaching the car, which is parked on the street away. And reaching out the door handle, and I thought, I wonder if this crazy approach could possibly work for selling lawn mowing rounds. Interesting. But a little bit later, somebody came to me, and they asked about the business. And, and somebody somebody rang me about a lawn mowing business. And instead of actually telling them about what I have, I started by asking them a question. I mm. said, tell me, do you know what the cost of a lawn mowing round is? Mm. Which is each job done once. And that was in the papers. That's how it was advertised. So people didn't know. So I started explaining, instead of trying to sell my business, mm. I started trying to explain about how the business worked mm. and then give more information. You came to see me, I'd give you more information. At the end of it, I would just say, here's some jobs in your area. That was my entire sales pitch. A little while later, one of these guys actually rang me and said, Jim, I'd like your advice. And I said, yeah, sure. He said, I've been offered another business in my area, which is a better deal, that one or yours. Now, this is an interesting question because he had said to me, you know, he's asking my advice. Yeah. The whole purpose of what I was doing was to sell lawn yeah. mowing. If I advise him to buy the other business, then I'm defeating the whole purpose. That's right, yep. But I felt God does not want me to, God wants me to act with integrity. I must give this guy the best advice I can. So I asked him a question and I said, okay, tell me what the cut is, tell me where it is, how long has he had it for? What's the average price per job? Why is he leaving? All the, all the questions that anybody in the industry know how to ask. Due diligence and I allowed things. It, and I said to him, you should go buy the other business. Wow. And, and I, I, gave this, I was asked the same question three times in rapid succession, and each time I told him to buy the other business. And each time, in the end, they all came back and bought from and me. bought your business. Not because. I had the best business, but because they trusted me because I was caring about their welfare. Now, that particular decision that I made because God wanted me to do the right thing, to act with integrity, has actually been the, the greatest single reason for the success of everything that I do. Yeah, that's but amazing. But I've always looked at it from the point of view, what's in the best interest of my franchisees, yeah. never what's in my interest, never what's in the interest of the business. 
what's the best interest of my franchisee. Yeah. Jim, can I, can I ask you, that basic approach that you have, is would you describe that as a, a strategy or a value? Is it something that people can learn or is it something that has to be lived from, from your own heart? It's a value that defines a strategy. Mm. And, and people often ask me, what is it? You must be very proud of having close to 4,000 franchisees and the big network drive. I said, no. The thing that I'm most proud of is the very widely throughout Jim's group, my mm. franchisors share my values. Mm. The franchisees come first. If I, if, I, if I send you an email, if I send you an email, you'll actually see at the bottom a little tripartite thing that says, our first priority is the welfare of our franchisees. We're also passionate about customer service. We've signed only franchisees and franchisors. We're convinced we'll succeed. Mm. That is the values behind Jim's group. And they are profoundly Christian values. That mm. so we serve other people. The, 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 the great story behind Jim's, apart from the, the, the parable of the talents, is Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Yeah. Yeah. We, we serve our franchisees. We yeah. are there for their benefit. We are there to help them succeed that is the core value above everything else mm. and we'll do extraordinary things to make that possible and that's why Jim's works mm. because people recognize that and that's why it works in mowing and in cleaning and in x number of other yeah. fields of endeavor because it's, it's very it's, radical thinking mm. and, and we had a guy called come out from the uk um, some while back and he'd been decades in the, in the industry in the franchising industry and he spoke to her and met at my franchise board at conference and he said he's never seen his whole career anything like the gym culture. Mm. And it's profoundly, even though most of my franchisors and franchisees aren't Christians, it's, it's Christian values that yeah. actually underpin everything that we do. Yeah. How do you go about maintaining that culture? You, you're adding franchisees, you're adding new new companies. How, how have you gone around having those values pervade all of the different parts of the business? I talk about it all the time. Right. I'm always, always talking about, about service to franchisees and everybody knows my values because every franchisee has access to me. Every one of them gets my phone number and email at training. The franchisee or any franchisor can bring me any time about any subject mm. and and just just sheer repetition, force of example, passion, just, just everything. The way our contracts are written are very... Extreme. We, we have a contract that actually allows our franchisees to vote out their franchisors. It's the only mm. system in the world that allows that. Mm. They can actually pay a few thousand dollars. They can go independent. They can change to a different franchisor. They have all sorts of protections built in. Louis, I thought I was loony when I set this thing up. Mm. Um, like they couldn't believe anybody would, would write a franchise contract like that. But I said, no, this is this whole system is designed to serve franchisees. Look after them first. So the best way to do it is to give them rights. We, 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 we poll our franchises every year anonymously and we, and we show the aggregated details and all the honours and the rewards they give the franchisors are purely on the basis of how well they look after the franchisee mm. in the franchisee's opinion. And if they don't do a good job, they can get briefed. And the ones that do a good job, which most of them do get awards of various kinds and, and recognition and certificates and all kinds of stuff. So we're always, always talking about it. And then I talk at, at training. I give the first session to the franchisees and the first second to the franchisors as well. And they talk about these things all the time. Mm. And, and I talk about it on Facebook Live when we do it. We're always, you're always talking about it. And of course, because I'm the founder, I have a certain moral authority. Mm. People do business. 
And it also attracts people. I don't know if you've read my book um, about my career, but that, that's the book we give away, and that's got those values in it. And it actually tends to attract the right kind of people. So that, that's every customer a fan? Yeah. That book? Yeah. 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 Right. In fact, I was having lunch with yesterday, one of my most successful franchise owners, and the only reason she ever joined in the first place as a franchisee was because she read the book. She wasn't going to. And she read the book and said, I love those values. Mm. And she joined and became a franchisee and then a franchisor, and now she runs the dog wash division. And she's a wonderful, wonderful, warm, caring, decent person. And she loves the values and she lives them. And she's phenomenally successful because of that. It's it's interesting to hear be able to describe a a person that you know you know their character you know their attributes in the midst of all of the the data and all of the the financial statistics that you must be dealing with that for you it's still very much about the people. Yes, mm. everything's about character, Brendan. Everything in life about society, about success, about the home. Everything is about character. It matters more than anything. I don't believe in in abstract political, economic forces. I believe in people. Mm. And people driven by Christian values are going to be best for themselves mm. and best for everybody else. Well, Jim, you, you've clearly been a person that has been able to learn, whether it's the, the formal institutions of university and, and um, qualifications and degrees, or whether it's learning through the experiences of life, you've, you've demonstrated that, that you were able to do that well. From the place where you are, having having reached this particular point and all that you have learned, formally, informally, what might be the thing that you'd want to emphasise to uh, a young teenager coming to the end of their school and looking at their future laying out before them? What advice might you want to leave with them? One of the things that most interests me is the science of happiness. I read a lot of science. And we love, love, love stuff about behavior and what makes people happy. And people have this very wrong idea that the way to be happy is to do what you feel like, to, to, to pursue pleasures, to pursue enjoyment, um, to pursue possession, to, to look for status, to be, to be, look better than other people. And, and everything I've seen in life is that is, that is, and from my studies and from my experiences, that is a really, bad way of looking at life. Mm. In fact, what makes people happy is having a sense of purpose mm. and meaning in their life, doing the things that are hard in the short term that produce real joy in the long term, the kind of things that we're taught to do as, as, as Christians, as, as the fundamentals of, of Christianity. Mm. And that does create, like when you're talking about money, it's interesting, people think that the way to use money to be successful is to enjoy you know, have have lots of food and stuff and mm. have lots of possessions and stuff. In actual fact, the, the, the most, the greatest way you can, that money can contribute to your happiness is by giving it away. Mm. And they've, they've actually done studies of this. They actually create far more happiness giving your money away, particularly to a project you're personally involved in, is by far the most effective way to produce happiness. Mm. So I would say that even though I'm, Materially successful. One of the things that I'm very concerned about is that we live a very simple life. We live like very much like most families. I drive a ten-year-old like car, dress mm. in very ordinary clothes. Uh, you know, a, a night, a good night out for us is that we go to a local pizza restaurant. Mm. We, we we do not live well. We do not have expensive holidays. You know, have to fly our fly economy. We live in a reasonably 
in, in the money we have goes towards the things that God wants us to do. And, and I just think that is the, if you want to have a great life, mm. don't think about conventional success. Think about doing what God wants you to do. And, and don't don't make your aim to be happy. Mm. Make, make your aim to do what God wants and to live a godly life. And that will bring far more happiness than you can possibly imagine. Mm. I've seen that in my own life and that of so many other people. My, my wife is, an, is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful lady. She's the best person I've ever known. And she's somebody who lives for others. She just is naturally giving. Mm. And she's got a, a great life. She's got a husband and children who adore her. She's gone to construction business and her workers love her. Everybody adores her because she's a person who doesn't live selfishly. Mm. Jim, that is that is such a fantastic way for us to finish our conversation, for you to... Um, recognize the the goal is not to be successful, not to find happiness, but to follow the things that God has put before you. And in that, you can you can find those sense of purpose and that sense of success yeah. and that sense of making a difference. And, and it's just so... I think, I, yeah, I think our goal is to be successful, but I think success in life is having, having a meaningful life, having yeah. a great family, having yeah. close relationships, doing a job that means something And it's so lovely for you at, at the very end to, to point to somebody that you care for as the, the embodiment of that in, in your wife. Yeah. Uh, Jim, I won the lottery when I met my, my wife. I told her what, more than a billion dollars, there's no, there's no way. If I worked for a thousand years, I could never be worthy of the blessing of finding my wife. I'm, I'm so glad that you've, you have found her and that you, that you feel that way about her. Jim, thank you so much for sharing your story w- with us today. We uh, are grateful for what God has done in you and through you. And we continue to pray that the the next phase of, of what he's doing through you and the, the funding of the research that you're undertaking will make a substantial difference to, to the way communities and, and um, connections and people are able to, to function together um, in, in the world. All right, next friend. I appreciate it. Great to talk to you. God bless you. Thank you so much.